Welcome to Web3 with A6 and Z, a show about building the next generation of the internet. This show is for anyone, whether artist, developer, company builder, community leader, or others, seeking to understand and go deeper on all things crypto, Web3, and the future of a decentralized, community-governed, and creator-owned internet. This episode was recorded live earlier this week at an event we at A6 and Z Crypto co-hosted during NFT NYC in New York City with Adam and special guest and celebrated creator Rob McElhenney, Chris Dixon, and myself. More background and context to follow, but in the conversation, we covered the theme of decentralized media slash decentralized content creation, collaboration, community, and more. And we also touch on topics such as the metaverse, storytelling, writer's rooms, favorite TV shows, nostalgia, and much more. As a reminder, none of the following is investment, legal, business, tax advice. Please see a6nz.com slash disclosures for more important information, including a link to a list of our investments. Okay, the rest of what follows is all from the live stage. Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming. I'm Sonal Choksi. I'm editor-in-chief at A6NZ Crypto, longtime editor-in-chief at Andreessen Horowitz, and showrunner of the A6NZ podcast, and now host of the new podcast, Web3 with A6NZ. And this is actually the first live taping of that show. So that's kind of exciting. You're all part of that. And now let me just quickly introduce our guests. On behalf of A6 and Z Crypto and Adam, I'm excited to welcome Chris Dixon, longtime technology investor, former startup founder, founding and managing general partner of A6 and Z Crypto, and Rob McElhenney, longtime writer, actor, and executive producer known for the critically acclaimed comedy series, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. It's hit its 15th season recently in December and broke records as the longest running live action TV sitcom. That's insane. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And he's also the creator, among many other things, I'm just highlighting a few things, of Mythic Quest, which premiered a couple years ago on Apple TV and is set in the development studio of one of the most popular video games in the world. And I mention that because we'll touch on gaming in our talk. And finally, and probably most importantly for today, Rob is the co-founder and chairman of Adam, which is a community of storytellers and fans working together to create and own a new generation of characters and stories where the IP can be collectively owned by the communities who develop them. And the reason I gave you all this context is because it's one of my pet peeves when you tell people to introduce themselves because it's like, wait, let's get to the real stuff. So we're just going to jump right in. And start with, before we go into the specifics of what you do, how you got here, let's start with the big picture, which is decentralized media. Like, what does that even mean, decentralized content creation? And I don't know if you want to take that one first, Chris, and then Rob. Sure. I mean, I think one of the promises of the internet was, if you think about things like Wikipedia as an example, or even going back earlier before Wikipedia to kind of the ability for anyone to come along and create a website, one of the great promises of the internet was to democratize things that were previously controlled by a small group of people. There's a very famous essay about open source software called The Cathedral and the Bazaar that kind of, I think, is a nice characterization of this. And the idea is you sort of have two models for how to build software, how to build systems, how to build information systems or content creation or whatever it might be. One model is you have kind of a priesthood, a kind of an elite group who kind of controls things. And the other model is you have just an open system where anyone can come along and through hard work and merit and creativity and whatever else it might be, come along and make their contribution. Yeah. I think of Wikipedia as like a canonical example of this. When Wikipedia first came out in 2001, there were a bunch of encyclopedias, digital encyclopedias, including 
for example, Encarta, which was made by Microsoft, where if you went to Encarta and you looked up, let's say, a giraffe, you'd see a beautiful photograph of a giraffe and maybe some text written by a giraffe scholar, and it was like really nice and well put together. Wikipedia came along and it was this open system, and it literally anyone can come even without your real name and contribute. And at first, Wikipedia was sort of chaos, but over time, it got much, much better, and people came together, and they kind of self-organized. You know, people interested in chemistry went off and edited the chemistry stuff. And it turned out, as we know today, to be this incredible repository of human knowledge that's edited in this open, decentralized way, and really kind of replaced, you know, Edwin Carter, I think, went out of business in 2009 or something. So this was always kind of the promise of the internet, going back to the early 90s or even the 80s. This idea that you could democratize first information in the first era, and then the next era you could democratize publishing, which we've seen with things like Twitter and Facebook, and obviously that's played out really interesting ways in social media. But now we have the possibility to kind of go further and decentralize ownership and creativity and all other kinds of aspects of the human experience, and that's what Adam's focusing on. I would say I really like the idea of owning what I make. That's for sure. But just in terms of the idea of decentralized content creation, that's a phrase I've heard a number of times, and I've read it a few times, and I don't know what it means. Yeah, what does it mean? I don't know. How, <laughs> how do you do that? Like, I, I've never... Well, I want you I've, to answer that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that anybody who's ever built something, created something, let's talk about a TV show specifically, because that's what I do. Yeah. They recognize it's a, it's a collaboration, but there is a, a certain amount of curation that goes into it. And I think any rational person can recognize that there's a, a curative level that's a part of the creation of anything. However, who has been the curator traditionally, is a question that needs to be asked and is being asked culturally right now and has been for at least the last 10, 15 years. And it's an important question because as we look around, we realize, well, okay, so just because we need to curate these materials, how do we open up the space to allow for other curators to come into the process? And I think that the ability to scale like that is so exciting. So I want to pick up on something you both mentioned. Chris mentioned the cathedral and the bazaar, which is actually an idea, as he said, that's been around for ages. But when I think of a bazaar, I think of a very messy, crowded, kind of chaotic place where, frankly, you have thieves, you have people running around, you have a lot of noise, you can't get anything done necessarily. And it's insane to me that you are talking about, I get the curation part, but bringing a more collaborative creativity and decentralizing that because I think of curation and creation as a very, not only cathedral-like enterprise, but there's a showrunner and someone mm-hmm. who has a vision. Yeah. I mean, I'm preaching to you. You are a very renowned creator. How do you think of that playing out and as you've been building and thinking about Adam? Yeah, so I think it, it helps to start with how a writer's room generally works because a lot of people don't work in writer's rooms. They don't necessarily know and they think there's a level of mystique about it, but truthfully, it's not that complicated. You get a a group of people together, generally curated by their scripts or word of mouth. And it could be anywhere from three to 25 people in a room, all working towards a common goal. And everybody has a certain set of talents and abilities. Some people are really great natural storytellers. Some people are really great, in my case, with my shows, they can tell jokes, they're really funny. Some people are just really weird and bring in a completely fresh and different perspective. But you can't have 25 people talking at once in the same way you can't have three people talking at once. You'll set up a situation where a showrunner, for example, would suggest, okay, today I'd like to talk about this. And then that person would 
would be the arbiter of where things headed. Because if you just had, again, 25 people all with different ideas of where something could go, you'd never be able to get anywhere. Exactly. Right. So you wind up with a person who's ostensibly up at the whiteboard with a marker saying, okay, that's a great idea, that's a great idea, that's a great idea, that's a great idea. Now, that is a very centralized model. And there's a reason for that. It's because otherwise it would be chaos. So we create this situation where the showrunner is using the talents of everybody in the room. And when they come into the room, it's agreed that that's the vision. That's the person who we're working with and for, and we're following his, her, or their vision for what the show might be. And so traditionally, as I mentioned before, right now there's still hundreds of opportunities and shows, but it's very difficult to get into that position. Yeah. And the way that I think of decentralized content creation and the approach that we're going to take is essentially just scaling that system up. So the way that it would work is the very first round, we're going to have four rooms. Four writers' rooms. Four writers' rooms. Well, let's even back up. Let's start with the application process. So it was really important to us from the very beginning that we didn't want to have a pay-to-play model. We wanted it to be merit-based. So we just simply asked the community, actually we asked the world, who is your favorite character of all time and why? And you had 500 words or less to explain who your favorite character was of all time and why. And the answers we got back were stunning. Stunning. Because you realize, wow, people identify with different characters for different reasons. And, yeah. and they have a very specific point of view. And they're going to bring who they are to that answer. And you're going to see who they are through that very, very simple answer. The idea is we would then curate those and then select 100 people. This is for the first round. We would break those rooms up into groups of 25. And in the beginning, we'll have a room lead. And a room lead in each room, a person that I've found over the years through MythQuest or through Sunny or through my years of running rooms, I've identified a few key writers that could run those rooms. So the people that you've designated, the people Correct. running the room. These would be people that work for Adam. And then there's a second lead. And the second lead would be somebody who is an assistant or somebody who's been a, around a PA or a writer's assistant or somebody who's, who's learning and is on their way up. Now, traditionally, they would both be working their way up and then going to either be in other people's writers' rooms or create their own shows. Very small and a very elite amount of group of people. So to scale that up, what if we created a room full of 25 people? The room lead and the second lead would work together with those groups of 25 and they would create something together. Yeah. Each group will create a character. So right from day one, things got really weird in the best of ways because I sat there with the entire team and we talked about, well, how would this actually work? And I said, they all know how I run a room because they've all worked with me in the past. So I just assumed this seems to be the easiest way to start. And then we'll see how things diverge from there. But right from the very beginning, one of the room leads said, I wouldn't run my room the way that you would. Interesting. So they pushed back on that of to course. do it their own way. That's the whole point. Right. And we asked him, how would you run the room? He would do it this way. And then we asked Kiana Taylor, who is our chief creative officer, how would you run a room? Completely different. Somebody else completely different. Then we asked the second leads, well, when you're going to be running the rooms, how would you do it? I think I would look at it from this perspective. And already you're realizing what's happening is that it's not that I'm passing the baton off. They're 
ripping the baton away from me and creating their new system. They're in fact whacking you in the head with the hammer. Exactly. So the idea is when we get to scale that those groups of 25 people, what will start to happen, this is something I noticed over the years too, which I've always found fascinating. It's about an average of 10% of any given writer's room goes on to create their own show. It's about that. So if, if there's a room of 10, there's usually one person that goes off to create their own room. A room of 20, there's two people. I don't know why that is. It just seems to be the case. And so our thought is that when you start to open and expand those ideas, that there's going to be 10% of those groups that are going to just naturally rise up and say, I'd like to now spin out my own room and do my own version of it. And that's where we start to get decentralized. I feel like we should coin a phrase right here on stage, like McElhinney's rule, the rule of 10%, like that in any given... Because if you extend your idea even further, you could almost argue that in the entire population of potential creators, that one out of every 10 is someone who can actually go and create their own creative enterprise. However, I would say this, and I think this is a really important distinction. I think this is also what separates Adam from, say, just a traditional writer's room or traditional approach, is that simply because of scale, regardless of how much money Hollywood has, regardless of how big these budgets are, there are certain things that are valued And you have to, for example, curate the writer's room because you only have a limited amount of budget. Some shows are really big, some shows are really small, but at the end of the day, you still have to make decisions. So generally what's valued in a writer's room is the ability to execute drafts or the ability to break stories. And those are the two most important things in a writer's room. Okay, but does that mean if you're really good at identifying specifics of somebody who's experienced a tremendous amount of trauma and you can bring that into a character and imbue that character with those very specific characteristics. Why do you have any less or more value than anybody else that's in that room? Well, only if you're working with a very constrained budget or idea. If you start to expand from there and say, well, maybe the criteria through which we're looking for writers or it's really creators, starts to expand. And I think we're already seeing that with the applications. It's really That's fascinating. So I have to say, though, and I hear that what you're saying is that's phase one, but a question here, what about that is uniquely Web3? Because quite frankly, a lot of that could be done in Web2. Like you could use crowdfunding, there's fan fiction, there's Kickstarter. I mean, Chris, you were formerly an investor in Kickstarter, and one of my all-time favorite shows, Veronica Mars, was like crowdfunded to be made. Now, granted, that was by the original showrunner, another Rob, but I'm still not quite hearing what's unique here about Web3, so I'd love you guys to share more of that, because I'm sure our audience wants to know, too. Well, I think in the beginning, it is more just as sort of a way to kind of keep things less chaotic and sort of controlled and kind of ease into the full vision. In the beginning, it is something that probably could and is run on a kind of conventional website model. The thought is that over time, you want to use blockchains for a couple of reasons. One is blockchains have this feature that I like to call can't be evil instead of don't be evil. So Google famously had this this saying, this was sort of their motto early on, which meant like don't have too many ads on the page, don't take too much money from the ecosystem. But then over time, the founders retired and management took over and all of these kinds of promises they'd made have not been kept. And that's just kind of the story. We've been now have 30 years of commercial internet And that's basically been the case for almost everything that's existed is that over time, the kind of charter of the corporation and the management team and things end up 
overwhelming the initial promises of the website. One of the nice things with blockchains is you can commit architecturally in the blockchain itself, in the software itself, to a certain system and including the economics of the system, the rules of the system, the rules if you're, for example, a third-party creator and you want to invest in this system and you want to you know, build a livelihood on it, you know what the rules are going to be. You know what they're going to be forever. If you're a software developer and you want to build around this ecosystem, you want to build a new interface or a new game or some other new kind of experience, you know what the rules are, right? And so that's one very important feature is down the road, as you build this kind of bigger system, you want to make these various guarantees in order to grow the ecosystem. Blockchains also allow for some really interesting features, one of which we call composability. So composability is a software concept that I think really explains, is a concept that essentially you can treat software and services and various things on blockchains as kind of Lego bricks. So for example, if Adam creates a set of characters, people can go, you know, fork those characters. They could make an alternative version of those characters that exist in a different universe. They could make a derivative version of the character. They can add to the character and they can kind of yeah. treat it like little pieces, which is a very powerful concept. You mentioned before that these bazaars can be chaotic. It's a very important organizing principle that we see in things like open source software for allowing millions of people to collaborate in a kind of coherent way, right? And so there's a bunch of features like that, which I think you're the entrepreneur, not me, but like I believe down the road, those features will become more salient. In the beginning, it will be kind of a more controlled Web2 kind of experience to kind of figure out the group dynamics and all the other things. That yeah, I think for me to accurately answer that question, I would have to start with why I became interested in Web3 in the first place. And it wasn't until I started listening to a lot of podcasts, but specifically Chris talking about his approach to why he felt it was important. And it's because... It's taking the speculation out of it. That I understood. And it's approaching Web3 as a means by which people are going to build the next version of the internet. For some reason, whatever Chris was saying unlocked something in my brain and the way that I, I look at things, the way that I look at the future, and the way I think we're headed based on leaders of the field and metaverse technologies and things like that. But in the short term, I love the idea of, again, using Web3 in our business to open up opportunity and access and to build a community. That I understand. And very specifically, in fact, it was Tim from Rough Garden on, on this, yeah. yeah, I had research on this very podcast, who said it very succinctly that to think about a blockchain as a supercomputer in the sky that has no owner, yet can enforce property rights in a way for digital assets that has never been able to be done before. But the idea that it can track IP and the transfer of IP and the enforcement of usage is really fascinating when you think about it to scale because you have massive departments in, we'll call it Web2, but like in the, in the studios right now, whose sole job is to just track the usage of their IP. Most of the time, it's to stop people from using it. Well, what if you looked at it differently and try to figure out ways in which we could use that technology to track bits of IP, essentially NFTs, moving forward in the future, but moving towards a completely different way of interacting with stories. I mean, we can still work this company, probably 90% this company could work using an old traditional Web2 model. But it's that last 10% that's the most important when you get to scale. Yeah. Because to track that many transactions, which is what we're talking about, it'll have to be a computational power. So you mentioned, Rob, that the media world's used to stopping stuff. They're used to blocking stuff. 
I would argue this is not in their interests, that this is a pre-internet way of viewing the world. That the internet is, by its nature, wants to copy things. It's, Information it's basic, is free. It's basically a giant copy machine is yeah. the internet. The video game industry has figured this out, and they've embraced copying. And so if you go on something like Steam, there's mods, there's you know forks, streaming as an example. Some of the more forward-thinking games company embraced it at first, but some of the older games companies like Nintendo, they fought it. They saw it as copyright infringement. Eventually, they realized the marketing benefits outweigh the infringement costs. And I think a similar thing using Web3, I think will spread to movies, film, writing. And they'll realize that it's better to have this giant engaged audience and then maybe figure out how to monetize some small portion of them the way that Fortnite and League of Legends does, right? So Fortnite, it's a free game. This is the modern way to make games. They're free and only a tiny percentage will buy things, but that's enough because people love it and they spread it and they pay your marketing costs. And I think this, like with Adam, I think one of the fascinating things, right, is you're not just going to have this community of creators, you're going to have this community of marketers. Yes, right? They're going to go out in. and they're going to evangelize it and they're going to own it. And, and that's a very powerful thing. I think that's one of the things that explains the popularity of something like Dogecoin, which is a ridiculous cryptocurrency. It's created as a joke. It is kind of a joke. Yet it's popular because people have felt on the sidelines. They felt disenfranchised and now they feel a sense of ownership. What if instead of some silly coin like that, they actually own the next Marvel? Like how passionate will they be? They will overwhelm any, any movie marketing budget. Like you could spend $300 million marketing a movie if you have a passionate community of 50,000 people. It markets itself. Tweeting and writing about it. It will be the most powerful. So I think these all combine. You have this creative thing, you have financing, you have creation, but then probably most importantly, you have the evangelism, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge tenet of what we're doing, which is community building. That's a huge aspect of what we're talking about. I mean, just today I went for a walk around the city and you see a line around the corner and it was for night, it was for sneakers. And you realize there's a massive sneaker community and everybody's hanging out and talking and they're really excited about the release of the new sneaker. And at the end of the day, it's just a variation of a bunch of cotton and plastic that's put on. And yes, there is a status element to it, but I think what people really identify with is the community of people that they can talk to about it. It's a collectible, but it's also something that you can engage with other human beings about. And you see that, of course, in the entertainment industry with Marvel or with Star Wars or with Pixar, where people fall in love with the characters and the movies and the ethos of those companies. Well, what we haven't seen yet is a company that's built from the ground up, which is that if it's built by the people who are a part of the community, well, they're already in love with the characters themselves and they can't wait to share those with the world. And again, if we continue to scale up from there, then I'm no longer very quickly in the position of being the arbiter to suggest that's a good character or not a good character. The community will create and it could spin, they can eventually spin off into rooms of where you could be a curator of one. And that's where the true decentralization comes in. Once we've got the ball rolling, you have rooms that are spinning out where people are contributing these characters that they've created into this Adam universe, which... The Adamverse. That's right. That's right. Which is owned specifically by the community itself. So I'm bought in on this, and I agree that there's a distinction between what you can do with Web2. For instance, with fanfic, you can't own. You don't get any upside. You don't have the discretion to decide the direction of your character. If you want to kill off Jar Jar beings, who's like annoying... You know, you can't decide that. It's like, there's still someone deciding that. Yeah. I want to talk now, though, a little deeper about the mechanics of how all this works. So specifically, one is, what becomes canon? Is there a canon? I'd love for you to answer that, Rob. And then along those lines, I also want to know specifically, we're at NFT NYC this week. 
Where do NFTs come into all this? But maybe we can start with the canon. Yes, yeah, so that's the, I'm dying the the, to know. And these are great questions. And these are the questions that we're constantly asking ourselves. And I kept coming back to the same issue, which is I should not be decided that. It should be a collective. But how big is the collective? So we started just with the room of leads and second leads. And I said, okay, just for the sake of conversation, I'll start. I believe that we should start here. And then very quickly, I started hearing people saying, well, uh, that's not such a great <laughs> idea, old man. I think the way we should do is actually start here. Because something that I learned a very long time ago is if you hire young people, listen to them. Young mentors is what I call it. Yeah. Yes. And you have these 23, 24-year-old people who look at the world from a completely different perspective. And it's now shaping the way that we're setting up what those parameters are, even to start with. But we will have to start somewhere. And what we came up with is that we'll come up with 13 rules. And it was an arbitrary number. It seemed like unlucky in the best of ways. 13 rules of the universe that are immutable, at least to start. And then we'll build from there. And by the way, when you say immutable, do you mean encoded into the smart contract or just kind of guidelines? No, just the into the lore. And one of those, for example, would be, if you think about it like the Marvel Universe, the only real rule that you see is that they're all existing in the same place and time insofar as they can interact with one another. Yes. But it's essentially our world plus superheroes and time travel right. and <laughs> all sorts of different things. So we're figuring out what those immutable rules would be to begin but then hopefully what happens is just like any amendable document, let's just say, that made sense at one point to govern large groups of people in 25 years time, if that no longer, or if there are aspects of that document that are no longer valid or valuable, they'll vote to change it. One thing I could add is also that I think there's, so I think Rob's at the sort of most advanced end of the spectrum, but I think generally I would argue the media world I think there's going to be a really interesting partnership between Web3 for a couple of reasons. One, I think that the media world is not particularly happy with the current configuration of the internet, specifically all the intermediaries that stand in between them and their audiences. Yep. And so there's sort of an economic motivation. I think secondly, the media world, when I speak to people that work at Google, NFTs and all these other things seem very abstract to them. Media folks are used to selling kind of virtual <laughs> experiences, goods. It's not strange to them. That makes a lot of sense. So where do the NFTs come in then? Beyond the canon, where does that play? Because we are talking about Web3, so let's get into the mechanics of NFTs. Let's talk about DAOs, like decentralized autonomous organizations, and how that plays here. Like, how does a governance... Well, certainly from a governance perspective, I mean, that's how we're tracking everything. So when people are admitted into the initial room, let's just use that as an example, they're given an NFT, which is their ticket. It's their pass. It's non-transferable. However, as we move forward and the community continues to grow, we'll be issuing other NFTs and that will be our way to create governance, to track IP, to make sure people are, again, all built to the smart contract, that people are uh, being compensated because we are, all of us will own those characters together. We will eventually become decentralized at a certain point because the community will be able to dictate where those characters may be used. I see a lot of people roll their eyes when I'm having a conversation with them and I say, well, the community will decide what happens. Well, how can a community of 10,000 people make a movie? It doesn't exactly. really work that way. Right. But what they can decide is we really love this studio and this filmmaker and this writer and we trust her to take our canon and of course you build out what it is that can be changed and what can't be changed 
and to take this grouping of characters and write her version of what that might be. And that includes licensing that IP. Exactly. So you see that actually happen in Marvel, where they will have different tones, different filmmakers come in. Essentially, you're building different levels of curation. It also, by the way, just speaking for myself personally, there's an aspect of what characters get to be made and not just who gets to decide and who gets to make it, but what gets made, which is actually one of the taglines in our trailer for Web3 with A6 and Z as a premise of Web3. But it's very salient to me that you use the Marvel example, Rob, because I was just thinking about how the spin-off Ms. Marvel character is a Pakistani-American woman. And I'm sorry, that would never have been greenlit, like, you know, 50 years ago. But you can only imagine what's possible if more things and more communities and more stories are being made by people who don't traditionally have a spot to decide that. So we don't even know what stories are possible, actually. 100%. And even the criteria by which someone is judged as a creator, as a filmmaker, as a writer, as is changing. Yes, Because exactly. you can get very granular and you can still have value. That is really exciting to me. That truly opens up access and opportunity because you're not saying, sure, okay, send me your script. I've just opened up that opportunity. But what if you say, I'm not a writer? And then people say, well, then you shouldn't be in the writing business. Why? Just because you can't execute a fully realized script doesn't mean that you don't have a point of view. Doesn't mean you don't have a story. Doesn't mean that you don't have something to say. And that makes you valuable. And that's what makes you a part of this community. That's why people fall in love with the characters that they're working on. And there will be an emotional investment. For example, when we say, okay, this is a character we created in the original round, and it's this beautiful monster, and she's horrifically misunderstood, but she's considered a villain, but it turns out she's a hero, and we follow her arc, and we have all this backstory written and this canon written, and then maybe it's even been licensed and made into a movie and everybody falls in love and then somebody suggests, should we kill her? And then the community has to come in and there'll be massive amounts of debate. And, and I think that level of emotional attachment, now you don't just get to experience it in the second person. You're now a part of this. It's not just processes. passive, it's interactive. Yes. I also have to say, excuse my language, but fuck only the emotional attachment because I want the financial stake to wait. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's why we're all here, isn't it? <laughs> no, but I mean, like, literally in those characters, if I, I mean, I'm not just saying this because I feel it, like, I feel like I own Gilmore Girls because I can quote every line, but if I'm contributing to that canon and I am creating things, I want financial stakes Well, that's in why it. the NFT is important because the NFT, so an NFT, very simply, is people think they're like JPEGs and art and things. NFT is a unit of digital ownership. It's the first time we've had this concept of like true digital ownership on the internet. If you go to Twitter slash C. Dixon, I don't really own that handle. You don't own it economically, you don't own it control-wise, and NFT you truly own. It's the first time you can really, domain names maybe, but that was sort of a niche thing, but NFT is a very generalized concept. It can represent anything that the creator wants to imbue into that NFT. It's a unit of digital ownership, so it's giving those creators true ownership. And they can take that and they can do things. They can, you know, stake their claim to make money if it appreciates. They can potentially, descending on how the system works, they can have governance rights, decide what's canon, maybe creative decisions, maybe other kinds of, you know, business decisions. They can take their NFT and take their ball and go home. They can go somewhere else. They can fork off. They can leave. The ability to have exit is a very important thing to kind of give power back to individuals, right? They can leave the system in the same way you can quit a job. If you couldn't quit a job, the employer would have all the power. And yeah. NFT lets you quit a system. It lets you quit an application. It lets other applications pop up that accept that NFT, that compete with the original application. Adam will be one of many that have to compete and earn the users, earn their loyalty. 
instead of demanding it the way that Twitter does. I'm stuck on Twitter. I'm stuck on the YouTube. Priesthood. So it's about shifting power to the individual by giving them true digital ownership. So some of the properties are, I've heard, ownership, non-fungibility, the unique, you know, you can kind of partially, fractionally do things as well. What about, you alluded to this, the data portability. What about interoperability and going across mediums? No, exactly. I mean, this stories is a... don't live in one medium, as you well know. Yeah. That, that, that's... I mean, you have a show that's also like about gaming. I mean, living in a yes. gaming world, like Ubisoft. Yeah. I have, look, if I'm being dead honest, I've been working in TV now for almost 20 years, and I've made a few TV shows I'm really proud of, and I'm less interested in working in traditional storytelling just because I've had the privilege and pleasure of doing it for so long. I want to look, see what's next. So the idea of just going to make a movie or making another TV show is not that interesting to me. So I'm really looking to see how are people going to be interacting with story moving forward. And nobody can say for sure. But I could tell you, once again, if you look at what young people are doing, and I mean even younger than the 25-year-olds, I mean my children. How old are they? 11, 10. Great ages. And the way that they interact with story and with gaming and with social, with their friends, is all just intertwining. And this has been predicted for many years. However, it's just starting to happen that the metaverse itself is starting to unfold. Now, whether or not it actually does and what the time frame is, who's to say? There's a lot of conjecture out there. However, we do know that we're headed to a space where people are going to interact with narrative in a completely different way. And I think that's what I'm most excited about for Adam is not the next two years, it's the next five to six years when we get into some really weird shit. Okay, I want to riff on this for a bit. So okay. let's talk about the really weird shit for a while. So, I mean, we're about the future. We're talking about the future. Let's start with the metaverse. We can't predict the future. It's always in the hands of creators to sort of figure it out as we go along and users too. But what are some of the things that excite you and that you think are possible here? Well, I just finished this book. It hasn't come out yet, but it's by Matthew Ball. And he wrote a book about the metaverse, very creatively titled The Metaverse. <laughs> He's not taking a position either way. He's just going to the people leading the field in the technology and asking questions. He also goes on to say that there's not really a complete definition of what it is, but he supposes, and I think this is fair, that a version of the metaverse would be a scaled up, a massively scaled up series of networks that render real-time 3D worlds that can be experienced synchronously and persistently by an infinite amount of users. That's incredible because really what you're talking about is Ready Player One. And I know that, like, stories like Snow Crash. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Metaverse is one of these kind of overloaded terms. People mean different things. The original Snow Crash was very VR. Ready Player One's very VR. I think Matthew Ball might define it more as, I believe, sort of getting more, the internet becomes more immersive, more important part of our lives, potentially 3D. Well, he specifically says that it doesn't need to be AR or VR related, but I don't quite follow that. And if he was here, I'd ask him, call bullshit, Matt. I don't understand how it can be a more immersive experience. And well, I think the argument about, would be, you know, if you're deeply into a discord right now, you can have sort of this flow state and you can have immersion in other ways, I think is a counter argument. But, but most likely, we know the trajectory. Like the Oculus is already pretty good. Apple's got their VR headset. Like we know how 
this movie's gonna go. The hardware's gonna get tiny and light and deeply immersive and probably extremely popular, and the games will get better and the experiences will get better. And, you know, it'll just be, look, I mean, all the trends, people, I think on average, you know, it's 5 billion people use the internet five hours a day now, which has gone up dramatically in terms of hours. We might be capping out in terms of people, but certainly the level of immersion, the number of hours, the kind of importance in your life, both like right now we think of VR as playing only. It'll probably be work as well. Right. right. There'll be all sorts of like opportunities. Education. For people that, yeah. I mean, all sorts of things will probably move virtual and there will be sort of some kind of blurring of the lines probably between work and play, right, in that world. But how do you get in that version of it where AR or VR isn't necessary? How do you, because I think it's really important maybe to it's get mu- Maybe it's multimodal, right? Like maybe yeah. there's a moment where you're on your phone reading text and then you go back. I mean, I don't know. I certainly think some kind of deep 3D experience will be an essential part of it. And like I have always been more bullish personally on VR than AR for this Use case because if you're going to go in the metaverse, you want to go in the metaverse. You don't want to see your couch and your coffee pod. Like mm-hmm. you probably want to go all the way in the virtual experience. And so, no, I personally think it will be a 3D virtual experiences in VR and new interfaces. You know, it could be brain interfaces, it could be whatever it might be. But the trend certainly seems to be a deeper and deeper immersion, right? Mm-hmm. Like, why wouldn't it be? I watch my children and the way that they interact in the Oculus, which I'm super open to, but even in an Oculus, I think old people, we have this prevailing wisdom that if kids are playing games inside, that they're wasting their lives. I think, first of all, we have a whole generation of people already in their 20s and 30s who would suggest otherwise. However, what I'm watching are these kids locking in to a digital, real. it's not fully rendered 3D, and you are experiencing it synchronously and persistently, but it's not a fully rendered 3D world. So you don't have a sense of presence quite yet. However, Roblox, Minecraft, those are social gaming experiences as much as they are, and storytelling experiences. And you are interacting with characters that have been created, but you're also socializing, but you're also gaming. Now imagine a time, of course, it's been imagined in sci-fi for years, where you can really tap into that. I find that riveting. And I feel like specifically Adam is and was created to facilitate a narrative experience in that world. That's fantastic. I just want to make one note on the Ready Player One analogy. I'm a huge fan of the book and the movie. I didn't read the second book, but one thing that does strike me is that the Oasis, which is where the Ready Player One universe plays out, is owned by a single corporation. And I would just put a point of differentiation here that with Web3, it would not be that. I mean, that's the whole, that's the entire premise of the book, right. which is that it was created by a benevolent creator, yes. nevertheless, still an authoritarian, and then he passes on, and then the whole movie is about who's going to control the Oasis. And that's one of Matthew's very big concerns, as it is in anybody in the space, which is if you get these massive, whoever it might be, tech conglomerates. I mean, that, let's just say it, let's just say it, let's call it meta, like, let's yeah. just say it out loud. I'm not going to pick a fight. <laughs> we will. With Meta. That's your job. I literally work for Apple and Disney right now. I see a world where we're all working together. Come on. No, but I truly do. I, fe- I do feel like there's no, I don't. I don't think it's either or. I agree with you. There's no, I, room I, for I, everybody. I think if people are open to it, and I think Chris's point is that people are not, which I understand, but I think that people in the entertainment space are open at this point to a myriad of possibilities. Otherwise, they're going to get swallowed. Whereas I think some of the big tech companies, they don't have as much fear of that. So I do think, I mean, I don't want to keep saying the same thing, but I do think the 
architecture of that world is important. And specifically the question you brought out, should it be kind of Oasis style, ready player one? I think at the end, didn't they end with, they split the keys among the five protagonists. So they had like a multi-sig and they shut it down on, <laughs> and they shut yeah. it down on like Thursdays or something, which is probably like <laughs> to not, hang out in the real world. not optimal. <laughs> like you should just create like an experience that doesn't need to be shut down. But but I think, for example, it could be like the early web was, where anyone can put up a website and anyone can put up a, you know, a house of whatever, a digital lot, a plot of land, a world, whatever it might be, and that there's some kind of standards and I think probably blockchains and NFTs and other kinds of things which let you kind of interoperate between them, let people have real economics, let them really build businesses, build lives, right, have some kind of governing control. You know, I think of an analogy we like to use is like we're in New York City right now, one of the beautiful things about New York City to me is it's a city that evolved organically. It evolved in many little plots of land. I mean, some of it was city planning, right? It was yeah. roads and sidewalks and parks, and those are very important. But then it was, you know, you divvy up everything into little NFTs, and people come along and they buy them, and they decide to invest in them, and they build things. They interoperate, and they interact, and you have this really interesting kind of interplay between the public and the private. You know, if you didn't have the sidewalk, you wouldn't have the stores, right? And That's right. You, you wouldn't want someone to own the sidewalk, and you'd have all sorts of weird... And that evolved in a way that I think you don't really see in planned cities. There have been attempts to do it and think about theme They've parks. They've actually failed all the planned yeah, cities. Yeah, so I think it's important for a lot of reasons, including the fact that I think it'll be a much more interesting and popular and successful metaverse if you let it kind of grow organically and be community-owned and be built on standards. And I think right now, actually, we're at the point, we're probably at the critical moment for making these decisions right now. Because when these things happen in tech, they happen very quickly, right? I mean, they, they happen gradually than suddenly, right? Like, these smartphones coming along, okay, it's this niche thing, and then boom, everyone's Damn. got a smartphone, right? It's just gonna, when it happens, it's going to happen. And now's probably the time for figuring out what's the architecture of that system going to be. So before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you guys a couple of quick lightning round, kind of a pseudo-commercial break on the podcast. Some quick lightning round style questions, and have you guys give me quick answers on each of them, and then I'll sort of wrap us up. But kind of going to sound like it's a, not a segue. It's going to sound random for a second, but I, I have a plan, okay. which is... <laughs> What's your favorite TV show or movie that you've watched recently? And you can't say your own shows. <laughs> why, why, why would I say my own shows? I'm just I, saying. I'm just making sure. Wow. You know, I actually, before I met Rob, I don't watch much TV. I'd actually watched all of Mythic Quest, and I, I liked it a lot. He had never seen Sunny. There's, there's like three people on the planet Earth who have never seen Sunny but have watched Mythic Quest. Are you one of them? That's four. <laughs> Wow, that's I amazing. had like a 10-year period where I was an entrepreneur where I watched no TV and that happened to fall into that window. But I went back and watched a bunch of it and I watched the first five episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly did. It was one of the few TV shows I've yeah. watched before I met Rob. Originally because I like video games and I was like, oh, it's yeah. a show about video games. That's cool. But then it was really funny and well done. So I don't know. Does it hold up? <laughs> Those early seasons. Were, that was a different time, Chris. So your answer is Mythic Quest? What was your... We were just talking about Deadwood. That you've been I just watching started watching Deadwood. Deadwood. Deadwood I, everyone says you got to watch Deadwood, and I hadn't ever seen it. And of course, I immediately was thinking about how the plots of land were like NFTs and cities <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> and so yeah, but I do the same thing. So I'm watching Stranger Things with my kids oh. because they're just now at the age where it's not terrifying, but it's still fucking terrifying. These <laughs> kids are so young, and I'm not sure I'm a good parent, but we're, <laughs> we're watching them all together right before bed. But the reason that that show works so well is that it's tapping into the nostalgia, the things yes. that we loved when we were kids, and now we can pass those on because they transcend generations. And you're watching a show about a community of kids who were like the outcasts that got together, but they're also using 
the way that we interacted with story at the time to pull us in. So now there's this massive community of people who love stranger things. Oh my God, I'm so glad you mentioned nostalgia because that's one of the lightning rounds on my list because I'm obsessed with that topic. And I finished Chuck Klosterman's The 90s. Everyone in my team is obsessed and tired of hearing me talk about this book because I love it so much. But I love it for the nostalgia. And one question I have for which, you guys what, about that, it? it's a book called The 90s, the 90s. by Chuck Klosterman. Okay. I mean, it's about, I guess we're all Gen Xers on stage and it's really much about us, but it's also fascinating. And this goes to your point about Stranger Things and your kids coming to it at the right time. I'm obsessed with this idea that people come back to things that they never experienced. And even on our team, there are people who are like 20 years younger who are like suddenly rediscovering the 90s and 90s culture and like, you know, vaporwave and like cypherpunk and all these cool things. And I'm very struck by this phenomenon. And do you guys have any theories or just quick lightning round thoughts on nostalgia? And if you even have a thesis about how your kids can experience something that you loved as a kid, but yet have no reference. Well, I can tell you just it. in going through the applications for Adam, what we're finding that's really fascinating is that I truly thought there was going to be a lot of people that were suggesting super, just because of the massive success of superhero yeah. movies. And it feels like that's what we're asking for is like to create superheroes. Characters that are heroes. Not at all. What we're getting, we're, we're getting human beings, we're getting... Some, it's kind of an even mix between villains and heroes. I mean, you know, as portrayed in the movies, protagonists and antagonists. And I would say that the vast majority of them are movies that people connected with when they were younger. Interesting. Because it then, when you are forced to ask yourself that question, and that was done on purpose, which was, we're not looking for writers. We're looking for something that touched you. Yes. And if you can explain and do a little self-actualization and try to understand why you connected with that character, then you have the ability to create a version of that character. a very interesting thesis. So... McElhenney's rule number two. Just kidding, keep going. (laughs) So what we're finding is that people are coming out and saying, I connected with this character at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. At those formative times where you're taking a narrative, but it's also when you're trying to figure out who you are and the kind of person you want to be or the person you don't want to be. And who is it that's having those impacts in popular culture? And those are the kinds of characters that we're getting. So I think nostalgia plays directly into that. The reason we love the thing is that we're still trying to hold on to or recreate consciously or subconsciously the things we had in our youth. But just to make sure I double underline what you just said there and the McElhenney's rule number two here, it's also what you're saying is that the ability to then be aware of and know what you're connecting with is actually another indicator that you may be able to be one of those one out of 10 who can then take those ideas and actually create things from them, which is also a very interesting extension because it does open up the world of creators. Yes, or you could even go a step further, which we're trying to do now, which is to go through some of the applications that were originally, we said, well, this isn't up to the standard of some of the others. We dug a little deeper, which is, they might not know the right questions to ask themselves beyond who's your favorite character? Because sometimes people are even intimidated by writing 500 words, so you could put up a video of you explaining it. But really what you're asking somebody, if this is the most important part, is who are you? And because the truth is you have a story, whether you know how to tell it or not, we know how to ask the right questions, and people are just fascinated. Everybody's fascinated, and everybody has something to add. That's fascinating. On nostalgia, one thing I think about a lot is You know, when you look at really impactful technologies in history, so like the automobile, the real impact of the automobile was like 30 years later when suburbs and highway systems, 
So I think social media is probably a technology that is at the scale of the automobile in importance. And I think we've seen some of the second order effects playing out. So for example, in politics, I think everyone has seen that like this has clearly changed the way the politics works. And I think we are only beginning to understand how it's changing culture. I haven't fully thought this through, but my feeling is kind of part of the nostalgia is kind of a yearning for a time when there was a centralized kind of narrative. There used to be the media and there was a thing yeah. and there were stars and there was sort of a, maybe there were sub, sub narratives, but there was sort of a narrative, right? And the internet's kind of collapsed all of that. You can experience any year at the same time. Everyone's sort of fragmented into sub communities. I think some of the, maybe it's just the age thing or something, but I feel like some of the nostalgia and something like Stranger Things also is for a time when it was just sort of simpler and there was like, you know. Yes, it's like a like yearning for. There were like 10 TV shows and 10 yes. things and 10, you know, right. top 40 music. And <laughs> it was like just sort of a unified culture. And right. now it's this kind of complicated thing that we don't fully understand. That's fascinating that you say that because when I was at Wired, I edited an op-ed by Douglas Rushkoff on narrative collapse. And one of his theses yeah. was that Netflix and binge culture was yet another form of narrative collapse, as was Game of Thrones by turning a TV show into essentially a big game that didn't necessarily have an ending. Hence, like, the whole mess at the end when they had to accelerate the storyline and all that stuff. So I'm going to skip the last one and actually bring it back to Adam and Rob. You know, you didn't actually finish your story when you were telling us your story of how you got to Web3. You started with Dixon and the podcast that you liked. But I would love for you to close the thread for how you took that and this is including building on everything we've been talking about here, your kids and the experiences of watching them. Like, how does this all come together to you and how you actually started Adam? Yeah, so I was at a point in my career and life. Again, I've just been very fortunate. And I realized that I had spent a lot of my life just building television shows that I was both writing, producing, and acting in. And it was a blast, but... I realized that I, God, I just had 15 seasons of a show. Yeah. What am I going to spend the next 15 years of my life doing? And it just seemed really worthwhile to help other people to find their own path to be able to do exactly what I was doing, which was, again, whatever their version of it might be. And so one of my kids, actually both of my kids, were taught by the same woman named Kiana Taylor. And she is a... a uh, a, a teacher, teacher? A t-shirt, yep, at my kid's school. And she was everybody's favorite teacher. She was the kid's favorite teacher. Everybody loved her. And I don't know, three, four years in, she did something up on a stage where it was a presentation for the kids and she made a comment that she was a comedy writer. Oh. And I'd known her for four years by this point. So I go up to her afterwards and I say, Kiana, do you know what I do for a living? And she said, yeah. I said, why have you not told me that? And she said, well, I thought it was inappropriate because I'm teaching your kids. And I was like, well, now I'm, instantly fall in love with her even more. But I say, hey, send me your stuff. She does. It's undeniable. And we hired her for Mythic Quest. She then wrote for Sunny as well. She was a part of that 10%. She created her own show, which she's now making at FX. So there was a clear path, at least in my mind, for her to go from teaching, which is a wonderful position, but her dream was to make her own TV show. So I look at that and I say, well, that's a clear path. Well, the four years that she already knew me, and it wasn't really clear at that point. Yes. There was also the decades before that. It was like a very clear path for me. Mm -hmm. And she didn't feel that level of access and opportunity. And so it's been just unbelievably satisfying for both of us. And she's taken the baton from there. So you can only do that so many times because 
if you're just creating shows, it just takes time and there's just a level of scale that you can't achieve. I mean, you were approximately close to her because she was your Correct. kid's teacher. I mean, that are, there's no better access than <laughs> right. being right next Literally to Literally right other. there. Yes. yes. And yet, when I started to think, well, how can we maybe expand upon that? Yeah, you could start a production company and just look for writers. But then that's when I started, again, questioning the criteria. So I'm setting my expectation of what the criteria would be for a creator. But doesn't that leave you with only your own myopic view of what something could be? Right. Right. At the same time, I'm hanging out with my friend Rich Rosenblatt, who I've known for a bit, and he started this company with Tom Brady. I believe that company is Autograph, right? That company is yeah. Autograph, yes. And I just didn't understand the company at all as we started. But hey, great to each their own. But Rich said, why don't you speak to my son, Chase, who's just native Web3. And again, going back to my old adage of if you ask a young person what they're working on and you, yeah. you, you listen to young them. Young mentors, I want and, to say it again. Yeah, and he started pitching me something. I'm like, I'm going to keep listening because this is what he and his community of young people are all talking about. This seems fascinating. And then he's the one that turned me on to podcasts. He turned me on to a whole different way of sort of approaching things. And then we were kind of pitching back and forth something that he was thinking and something that I had been trying to do, which was a scaled up version of the experience that we had with Kiana. And we just kind of had this like light bulb moment. I think he called Chris that day and Chris texted and said, I'll be in LA tonight. <laughs> I'm like, these people don't fuck around. <laughs> Usually in Hollywood, you're like, yeah, I'll call you next week and you don't hear from them for a month. And then within, you know, a couple of weeks, we were up and running. And I think it's just because we're just hitting that inflection point where all right. of the things were kind of working together. And now Kiana is our chief creative officer. She gets to not only run her own show, but build something that you know, four years ago would be impossible. And how many other Kianas are out there? That's like, exactly like the right. idea that the current system is discovering all the best talent yeah. seems pretty far-fetched. But think, right? And if you just think about the funnel that Kiana had to go through to get the access, and even that, I mean, we were standing next to each other for five years yeah. before the gate essentially was open. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. I just want to make sure, though, that people know what to do and where to go next if they're interested in learning or doing more. On our end, at A6NZ Crypto, Two people on our team, and there's more than that, actually, but Elena Berger, Jane Lippincott, Chris Lyons, they're all very actively involved in, in looking for these companies. Decentralized media, whatever we want to call it. And I like decentralized media, decentralized content creation. Yeah, well, decentralized content. I think content. it's just, it's a misnomer insofar as the process. Yes. But definitely the community itself and the ownership, 100%. Would definitely. you have another name for it, by the way? No, because you're going to make it a McElhenney rule or something. It's going to get even weirder. <laughs> I was. I, w I probably would have yeah. done a McElhenney rule. I love that. And how do people get involved with the Adamverse? You can go to adamverse.com. Well, characters, welcome. And thank you, everyone, for joining this first live taping of Web3 with A6 and Z. And thank you, Chris. And thank you, especially Rob. Thank you so much. Thank you. So thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to Web3 with A6 and Z. You can find show notes with links to resources, books, or papers discussed, transcripts, and more at a6nzcrypto.com. This episode was produced and edited by Sonal Choksi. That's me. The episode was technically edited by our audio editor, Justin Golden. Credit also to Moonshot Design for the art. And all thanks to support from A6 and Z Crypto. To follow more of our work and get updates, resources from us, 
and resources from others, be sure to subscribe to our Web3 weekly newsletter. You can find it on our website at a6nzcrypto.com. Thank you for listening and for subscribing. Let's go. Chris, I'm going to help you out here. Watch this. I'm going to fix your mic. Yeah, I was just wondering if that was Watch like this. in the back of No, <laughs> it's my man's collar. It's just getting <laughs> in the way. Hold on a second. Also, wait a second. <laughs> Fuck it. Hold on. I'm going to get in the collar. Well, tuck it. I mean, you don't have fucking hair. There it goes. I'm just... just it's a tech thing, you know. It's composing his appearance on stage. Sorry. That is yeah. composability Sorry, you, you in were action. Sorry, you on about something. <laughs> Thank you. You so, look great. Um...